0: Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Matthias Desmet, a professor of clinical psychology at the Department of Psychology and Educational Sciences of Ghent University in Belgium, and he works as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice. Desmet is the author of the books, The Pursuit of Objectivity in Psychology and Lacan's Logic of Subjectivity, A Walk on the Graph of Desire. Furthermore, he is one of the founders of the Single Case Archive. In 2018 he received the Evidence-Based Psychoanalytic Case Study Prize of the Association for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, and in 2019 he received the Wim Trischberg Prize of the Dutch Association of Psychotherapy. I welcome Matthias Desmet to Savage Minds. I came across you in discussions about lockdown, mm-hmm. and I am very concerned about what happened here where I am. We were the first Western country to adopt the China model of lockdown, which was quite surprising because, as you know, prior to lockdown, no Western country ever thought, let's do what China's doing when it came to human rights, psychological well-being. China was not the model for social contagion. Let's put it that way. I wanted to start our discussion off with how this entire lockdown world seems to have been a slowly boiling frog effect, if you catch my meaning, that we Uh. were put into water, the heat was turned up, it felt warm, but we didn't notice we were boiling until months later. And the psychological destruction that lockdown has left someone like me, and I'm someone who's lived through quite a bit, I considered myself mentally healthy, stable. I think I've gone out of my mind multiple times since lockdown happened, both because of how cruel it was in Italy, the political ramifications for lockdown, and Mm -hmm. the fact that no one who is not extremely well off would be prepared for the kind of hardships that were to follow most people who are, let's say, the many renters of the planet, people who don't own property, who had to still cough up rent every month, Mm -hmm. despite many people not receiving checks, many Mm -hmm. people being left high and dry by systems. And it seems that those who devised lockdown didn't think at all about the poor. They took the poor for granted, expecting them to do the Deliveroo food deliveries, to do the Uber driving. But... There was really no thought behind how lockdown would affect people with children, women who took a lot of the responsibility of the home education of these children. And then the brute force that this had on our economies, the economies, I don't mean of nations, but of small families of large families, people with incomes that were shattered. Mm -hmm. You work in the field of psychology And I'm wondering what you took as your first steps into this lockdown, as someone who was like me in a European country, seeing things starting to get locked up. And then what was your first reaction to this lockdown?
1: Oh, you know, to start really in the beginning, when I saw the first footage, the first images, of uh, uh, China's reaction to a new virus, my um, first my first idea was that the virus probably was much more dangerous uh, than uh, China told us, because otherwise uh, they would not take such uh, dramatic measures to uh, to fight it. But it's strange. In a few days, and once the virus arrived here in Europe, I immediately and once I, I started to study the statistics and uh, and all the medical mathematical models that um, that were presented uh, in the mainstream media and that were used uh, to um, uh, to 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 build the mainstream narrative and to as a, and that were used as a basis for the for the corona measures. Uh, i very very quickly i started to have the opposite impression i started to have the impression that the dangerousness of the virus was uh, dramatically overestimated and overrated and um, i I actually actually am a clinical psychologist but i'm also uh, i also have a master degree in statistics and um, uh, so uh, I'm, i'm not a statistician i don't call myself a statistician because statisticians uh, do statistics as their job and that's not what I do now I have done that for a few years but uh, not, not at this moment so but I started to study the statistics and, uh, and, uh, and the mathematical models that were used in particular the mathematical models of uh, imperial college and uh, yeah, from the first days of the crisis from the the first uh, moments uh, of, 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 of the crisis here in, in Europe I had the impression that the dangerousness of the virus was uh, dramatically overrated and um, uh, and there were several other or there were several world-famous statisticians who had the same impression. I'm thinking, for instance, about uh, Ioannidis, uh, John Ioannidis of, of Stanford University. Uh, so, but, but and, and, and in my opinion, uh, so the, the, the mathematical models of Imperial College uh, estimated millions of deaths uh, uh, in the first months of the crisis if no dramatic measures were taken, uh, for instance, in a country such as Sweden, uh, they estimated that uh, 80,000 people would die by the end of May 2020. If no, if the country did not go into lockdown, and um, the country did not go into lockdown, and only 6,000 people died. I always give this same example because it's. I think it's a very uh, convincing example, um, and. Um, So yes, that that was my my first impression or my my first reaction during the first months of the crisis, I immediately wrote some some opinion papers uh, warning that um, the the fear or the anxiety for the virus could be more dangerous than the virus itself. Uh, For instance um the beginning of the crisis there were several large international institutions such as the united nations uh, uh, and several others as well who who warned us uh, that um, the measures could claim more victims than the virus Uh, for instance in the in developing countries uh, more people could die uh, because of starvation could die Out of uh, from hunger, uh, then the virus could claim, uh, even if no measures at all were taken. So this shows us something strange. And in one way or another, all these warnings and these messages uh, did not really have a large effect, which was strange because it's something very basic actually to think about if you consider different measures or different remedies for for. A problem. Then the first thing you want to know, I think, is whether uh, the remedies uh, will not be worse. The cure will not be worse than the disease, so to speak. And in one way or or another, this didn't happen. We, at any time, have we seen in the mainstream media a real comparison between the number of victims the virus could claim and the number of victims the measures could claim? Uh, and that's what we needed. That, that would be a rational approach to, to a pandemic, to, to, to just think about uh, what the consequences will be of the measures and what the consequences can be of the virus itself. And then we, what we should have seen from the beginning were two graphs alongside each other. One graph showing the number of victims the virus claimed and another graph showing the number of victims the measures could claim. But that didn't happen. At any time, have we seen such a comparison of these two graphs?
0: Yes, and I'm alarmed because last night I went to my Facebook page about four days ago, five days ago at most, I put on my Facebook wall a question. Now that more doctors and scientists are coming forth to question vaccines, not just the vaccines themselves, but the mandates, all of it, could all of you post information below that points to those who are speaking out? I asked a question. There was no link in my post. Facebook took it down. They took it down as against their rules. I asked a question. I posted nothing. Mm. Now, I'm coming from academia. I'm an anthropologist turned journalist. I was pretty shocked to learn about the foibles of mass media, the way in which you go about approaching stories. And one thing that was shocking to me was to learn that stories are approached not from a truth category, but from a what will people like popularity category. So Mm. skip back to last March, April of 2020 when I approached many editors with pitches such as, I'd like to cover the mental health aspects of lockdown. And mm-hmm. I'd like to cover how the mental health aspects of lockdown are affecting families and women and children. All of this was no, 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 no. Major to minor publications said no. And the answer was pretty much the same. We can't run a piece like this, or it will look like we're against lockdown. Now, Matias, this is insanity because one of the most important parts of both science and media is ostensibly that you ask questions and you try to answer those questions. Now those questions answered might be completely wrong. Then you go back and you do, if you're in science, another study. If you're in journalism, you write a follow-up piece. It's simple. It's not that hard yet early on. I noticed how we were being led down that pathway to Do not question. And if you do question, the architecture was already being set up that you were definitely a right wing nutter, conspiracy (laughs) theorist. And I'm not even on the right, not even near the center. I'm very far left. And Mm -hmm. I was I was shocked by what was happening really early on. Left wing papers telling me this, not right wing, left wing. And then similarly, I've interviewed two of the great Barrington declarants on the show. Mm. And Jay Bhattacharya has spoken out quite eloquently about the dangers that lockdown would pose to those in developing countries, even before first world countries, the economic harms. And then here we are, I'm in the West, and I suffered devastating effects economically of lockdown. So why is it that no one is allowed to talk about this? Is this part of the psychological landscape being set down for us?
1: To a large extent, I think. Of course, you could think it has to do with censorship. And maybe to a certain extent, it has to do with censorship. But I think, in my opinion, in the first place, it's a matter of self-censorship. And it's a matter of uh, more unconscious mechanisms, mechanisms that are typical for a process that I call mass formation, uh, which in one way or another uh, make that uh, people are not able anymore to really take a critical distance and to consider a, a narrative uh, in a critical way. I think uh, that's, uh, for me, the major mechanisms uh, uh, that are uh, that are at at work here um and i think this mechanism of mass formation i have been describing this in quite some uh, interviews and podcasts um uh, and i I think it's 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 something well it's something very typical for uh, the tradition of the enlightenment uh mass mass formation or crowd formation if you want to call it like that uh, has always existed since thousands of years but uh during the last two or three centuries, it became increasingly strong and it lasted longer, the phenomenon of mass formation. So it's in one way or another, it it is related to to the rise of of the mechanistic view on man and the world. Um, um, uh, I I describe this, I'm about to publish a book now in January, about uh, the relationship between uh, um, the mechanistic ideology uh, mechanist materialist view of man in the world and the rise of, um, of, uh, of 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 mass formation crowd formation on the one hand and then also totalitarianism on the other hand and totalitarianism is a one specific uh, type of the totalitarian states actually is is, is, is directly based on 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 the phenomenon of mass formation and that distinguishes it from from a classical dictatorship it's actually something completely different than a classical dictatorship exactly because it's based on uh, this process of mass formation now i don't know if you're interested in um, going into this this mechanism of mass formation oh Um, yes absolutely well yes well um, as i said a a mass or a crowd is one specific kind of group formation. Um, that emerges in a society when when very specific conditions are met. There have to be four conditions, four typical characteristics in a a population uh, in order for large-scale mass formation to emerge. And the first one is that there has to be a lot of uh, uh, people who are socially isolated, so who lack social connectedness. Um, And this was really the case before the corona crisis. For instance, um, the Surgeon General of the US uh, mentioned that there was a real uh, loneliness epidemic in the United States. And then in in countries such as the United Kingdom, um, a minister minister of loneliness was appointed because over 50% of the people reported that they had no meaningful relationships at all. Um, So there was really like, uh, that's, that's the most basic uh, precondition for mass Im- uh, for, for for mass for mass formation to emerge. Uh, you have to have a lot of individuals that are socially isolated, or as Hannah Arendt calls, calls it. I guess you know Hannah Arendt, the German Jewish philosopher who wrote this wonderful book, uh, The Origins of a Totalitarianism, and uh, she 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 um, she uh, calls it. Uh, uh, social um, uh, atomized atomized individuals so people who, who are completely isolated and disconnected from from other people and then a second the second condition is that there has to be a lack of sense ma- making a lack of meaning making in life so people have to feel that their life is senseless and for instance you this, this was in particular clear at the level of uh, of uh, the jobs of people so um, uh, in a recent Gallup World Poll um, estimated that worldwide uh, 63% of the people um, considered their job as completely senseless or meaningless, Um, and only 30% considered it really meaningful. So, this shows, I think, the, the extent of the problem. Of, of, of the lack of meaning making. And, and the, the, the first, the second condition follows from the first one. If people feel socially isolated, they, u- they usually will feel that their lives are meaningless and senseless because people are really human or really social beings. And if they feel no connection with someone else, they don't know what they are living for. And they don't know what they are working for, for instance. There are other aspects of uh, this lack of sense making at the level of jobs as well, but that's definitely one uh, very important aspect of it. And, um, also, there is, uh, David Graeber, a professor of, uh, the Uni- uh, from the United Kingdom, wrote a wonderful book about it uh, Bullshit Jobs, about this phenomenon of lack of meaning making at the level of, of work and, and jobs. So, we have lack of social bond, lack of meaning making. Then, the third condition is very important as well is uh, uh, that there has to be a lot of free floating anxiety and free floating psychological discontent in a society and what do i mean with that free-floating anxiety that means anxiety that is not connected to a mental representation Uh, when you are scared of a dog or of a lion or or, or of something else that you consider dangerous you know what you're what you're anxious for you know what you're scared from but uh, sometimes people are confronted with anxiety and discontent which they cannot connect to um, a mental representation. And in that case, we call it free-floating anxiety. And that's the most painful kind of anxiety because it's completely uncontrollable mentally because you don't know what you're scared of. Uh, you, you lack any mental control over the anxiety and you uh, and the anxiety threatens to, to turn into panic, which makes it uh, uh, extremely uh, painful on a psychological level. And uh, the fourth condition is that there has to be a lot of... Uh, frustration and aggression in society, a lot of free-floating frustration and aggression. So when all these four conditions are all nicely connected to each other, if people lack social bonds, they will lack uh, meaning-making and sense-making in life, and they will experience a lot of uh, free-floating anxiety and discontent, uh, and in the end, they will feel frustrated and aggressive without knowing what they are frustrated and and aggressive for. So if if, if these four conditions are fulfilled in in a society, Uh, then the society is extremely vulnerable to mass formation. And it happens in exactly this way. If under these conditions, a narrative circulates or is disseminated um, uh, through the mass media, for instance, in the population, then a a narrative that indicates an object of anxiety and at the same time provides a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, for instance, a virus as an object of anxiety and strategy, To deal with the object of anxiety, for instance, lockdowns, then all this free-floating anxiety, the third condition, remember, all this free-floating anxiety might connect to the object of anxiety indicated in the narrative, and there might be a huge willingness in a population to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. And in this way, uh, uh, people experience a psychological advantage, which simply is that um, they're. Free floating anxiety now is connected to a representation and that they they have a strategy to deal with uh, uh, the anxiety. So in that way, the anxiety becomes more controllable. And at another level, something even more important happens because all these different people participate in the same strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. People feel connected again. They feel a new social bond. And that's why in all countries around the world, people mention or, or everything seems to be about a new kind of citizenship and a new kind of solidarity. If you do not want to get vaccinated, if you don't want to participate in the lockdowns or in the social distancing or in the mask wearing, you show no solidarity with other people. So there's a new a new solidarity that emerges in a society and, that's, and and a new kind of social bond that is established. And at the same time, in the heroic battle with the object of anxiety, people all also experience a new kind of meaning making yes so what we see is this people started in an extremely negative and painful mental state and because of uh, the mass formation and because they all identify they all buy into the same narrative this negative mental state switches to a positive mental state to a symptomatic positive mental state and why is it symptomatic because it's always destructive and self-destructive in nature all the frustration and aggression, for instance, are directed at the people who do not want to participate in a mass or in the crowd. And that's a, a, an additional very strong psychological motivation uh, to participate in a mass formation. So all these negative factors are switched and turn into something positive. This leads to a certain mental intoxication, which is perfer- perfectly comparable, even identical to the phenomenon of hypnosis, which makes that people's attention is focused on one point, which means the danger associated to the object of anxiety. In this case, the virus, but historically in the first half of the 20th century, for instance, the Jews or the aristocracy in the Soviet Union, um, all the psychological energy and all the attention is focused to this one aspect of reality indicated by the narrative that led to the mass formation and all the rest disappears into darkness, and that exa- that's exactly the reason why uh, people seem to be only aware of the victims that the virus could claim, and they are not aware at all of the collateral damage of the measures. It could be far worse, which is probably far worse than the danger than the damage that could be caused by the by the virus. So this brings people into a very strange situation, which if you're not. If you didn't buy into the narrative, if you are not grasped in this process of mass formation, which makes everything seem utterly absurd, because it seems as if people suddenly only can see and are only sensitive to this one aspect of reality and that all the rest doesn't count. So that's exactly the same as in hypnosis. It makes, for instance, this focusing of the attention uh, as a consequence of the process of mass formation is extremely strong, also comparable to hypnosis. And to give one very good example, if a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient to focus the attention of someone so much on one aspect of reality that you perfectly can perform a surgical operation and that person will not notice it. That happens time and time again in, uh, when hypnosis is used as a uh, procedure to, uh, during surgical operations. A simple procedure, focusing the attention, hypnotic procedure, focusing the attention of, the, of someone on one small positive aspect of reality is sufficient to allow the surgeon to cut straight through the flesh and bones of the the person without noticing it. And that's what happens in mass formation. That was so typical for the totalitarian states of the first half of the 20th century, that people seem to be not aware of the personal losses they suffered because of the totalitarian regime. That was what uh, 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 historians, Notice time and time again, these people are completely unaware. They seem not to realize that they are heading for radical self-destruction. And for instance, Stalin killed 50% of his own party members. And and those who were condemned, usually without any reason, they accepted their fate. They accepted uh, the sentence and without objecting uh, uh, were were brought to death. So um, that's something extremely typical for mass formation. This is hypnotic effect. Uh, uh, which we see now, I think. Uh, People don't realize that they lose their freedom and and that they lose their their entire future in the end.
0: It's interesting what you've pointed out about both the statistics of loneliness prior to lockdown, Mm -hmm. the fact that we've all been trained in loneliness since the advent of the internet, each year more and more hours spent online, The shocking lack of any kind of public awareness, just like we would see, we saw this with video games, parents, be careful about how many hours your kids spend on Nintendo. But the internet somehow was never to be cautioned. It was always okay. Even though, and I've pointed this out many times, but friends of mine who practice psychiatry or psychology have now had to adopt the practice With patients, when a patient says that they have a new boyfriend or girlfriend, they have to ask the person every time, have you ever met this person in real life? Mm. Because they were shocked by some instances with patients that they would be talking about months-long relationships where they never met the other person. I'm thinking to Elias Canetti, who wrote for me one of the most brilliant books of the 20th century, Crowds in Power.
1: I I read it, yes. It's here. It's here on my it's here on my desk besides me.
0: Oh, brilliant. It's a wonderful book. I've taught this this at Goldsmiths, in fact. And he says the crowd emerges from the need of the lonely individual to conform with others, but because the individual cannot exert a form of dominance on his own self, he exerts it through the crowd that speaks with one voice. I'm paraphrasing hmm. Kennedy here where the crowd's urge is always to grow larger consuming all the hierarchies, even if it feels persecuted and demands retribution. The crowd sees itself as entirely pure, having attained its highest virtue. Hmm. This is shockingly familiar, given what we've seen on social media over the past 21 months. I highlighted a tweet earlier today by someone who has several hundred thousand followers, who tried to shame people who don't take the vaccine, saying Mm. that it is an act of solidarity to take the vaccine. And then I kept thinking back to Terry Gilliam's brilliant film, Brazil, where throughout the movie, the logo of this very totalitarian society that we're witnessing is we're all in it together. And I've heard this in the UK, we're all in it together, whoa. I feel like I'm living a science fiction dystopia, and I feel very down since realizing how dystopic things are. I mean, The virus in the early weeks, at first I was like, oh, this must be very serious. We'll have to conform to these codes. Let's hope in 14 days we'll have some news, but quickly it was evident that this was not the bubonic plague. This was not any form of plague, Mm -hmm. that the mortality rate was larger than the flu, but that suddenly flu statistics were being wiped out. They weren't being Mm -hmm. recorded. I'm sure you must have something to say on this as well with the fact that in some countries, they're not reporting flu. So we're being frightened to death into conformity and much in the way that Canetti discusses how the crowd seeks to control through its collectivity. This is frightening to me where he says that The intrusion of power is, I'm quoting him, is like a knife cutting into the flesh of the victim. The questioner knows what there is to find, but he wants actually to touch it and bring it to light. So we get all these tweets saying, well, that guy, there'll be an article about a man who refused to believe that the the virus was serious and he dies. So you get like the Guardian. It's always a left-wing paper running a story saying COVID denier dies and then everyone their job on social media is to finger wag and say, see, he died. You've mm-hmm. seen this, I'm sure, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I didn't see that in particular, but I, I recognize it immediately. Yes.
0: And there's a lot of similarity between with what Canetti's project does and Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, yes. where yes. she also looks in a sense, she doesn't look at crowd psychology per se, but she looks at political order. Mm -hmm. And we're living in an era that some people call totalitarian, others call authoritarian. And most people who will be listening to this probably will nod their heads. Others might be writing me an angry email saying Mm -hmm. you're denying the virus. But we are in this very strange paradox of those who are the cowboys in the white hat and those cowboys in the black hat. You're good. Uh, You're bad. Nothing in between.
1: Indeed. But this is, of course, I think it's a classical example of large-scale mass formation. I I think so. And also Hannah Arendt, she does not really give a psychological description of mass formation, but she acknowledges that totalitarianism intrinsically is based on mass formation. That's the difference with the classical dictatorship. In a classical dictatorship, people are scared of of the dictator because of the physical power of the dictator. Let's call it like that. So because of the physical power, because they are scared of the physical power of the, of the dictator, they allow the dictator to impose his social contract one-sidedly to society. But a totalitarian regime and a totalitarian state is something completely different. The totalitarian state emerges from the belly of the population. It emerges from uh, uh, the, the first step of totalitarianism always is the formation of a crowd or a mass, which is fed and by the, by the mass media, And from which slowly a totalitarian regime uh, uh, emerges um, as we are witnessing now i think Um, and uh, an ideologically driven totalitarian regime uh, totalitarianism in the end uh, is always ideologically driven Uh, it's a blind ideology the blind conviction that the world should be the society should be reorganized according to one or another scientific or pseudo-scientific ideology that's always the case people forget that that totalitarianism always is based on um, the blind belief uh, in in a scientific uh, ideology um, which which in which which very quickly shows that it is radically irrational and uh, shows radical contempt for the facts Hannah Arendt says, the statistics and the graphs that are used by the totalitarian regimes, they always prefer to use statistics and graphs uh, to prove that uh, that, uh, their approach to society is the best uh, or that their take on a certain problem uh, has to be preferred above others. Uh, But in the, uh, every time, time and time again, we see that the statistics and the graphs show a radical contempt. Uh, for the facts. That's something Hannah Arendt mentions in uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And what you are witnessing now, I think, uh, is, is a new type of totalitarianism, uh, not the mob totalitarianism as Hannah Arendt calls it, of uh, Hitler and Stalin, but the technocratic uh, totalitarianism, which is led by dull bureaucrats and technocrats. It's unbelievable, incredible that Hannah Arendt mentioned it, this already in 1951. She said, we've seen the decline and fall of uh, Hitler. We we will witness uh, the fall of Stalin probably in the nearby future, she said, Uh, but, or of Stalinism, uh, but uh, she said, we will see the rise of a new kind of totalitarianism uh, and this new totalitarianism uh, will be a technocratic worldwide totalitarianism. I have often wondered how she could know that in 1951, and now I think I understand this uh, better. Uh, and I, I describe in my book what I think the basic mechanisms are at work here. But uh, indeed, that's, that's, I, I think that's a uh, classical example of, uh, of, uh, of the emergence of, uh, of a totalitarianism uh, we are witnessing now.
0: Yet so many people... <laughs> I, if you go to my Facebook wall... It will make you either laugh or cry some days because people believe that we are being duped, that we are denying the existence of the virus, that we Mm. are anti-science simply for saying, again, talk to Ioannidis, who's done some great work on this as well, but why if a vaccine that is supposed to work, is it necessary (laughs) that... One, it's still people who are vaccinated are still carrying the virus at the same rate as those of us who are not. So how selfish are we? Isn't mm-hmm. it more selfish to get the vaccine since you're protecting yourself? You know, I mean, if you really want to follow up the selfish argument yes. and, and this is really put on a pseudo religious platform where we are being forced to declare our virtue by reason of our having committed to a vaccine that is as most scientists are now saying quite leaky it's not really a vaccine if you start to read more and more of the literature because a vaccine should be able to actually prevent transmission which it's not doing it lightens the effects of the illness when one gets it but even to question this you are put into the area of pol pot stalin take your dictator you are an evil person and the debate shuts down. Now, from a psychological level, and I'm thinking back to Kinesi as well, but what is driving, is it really that the loneliness, the online living that we're all doing since lockdown, what is contributing to this need for people to get on their computers and hammer out anger?
1: Uh, Yes, but that's, you know, uh, even in the 19th century already, uh, people such as uh, Gustave Lebon, uh, one of the major scholars on mass uh, and crowd formation, he wrote this wonderful book, which uh, has been translated in English, uh, in which his English title is The Psychology of the Crowd. Um, and he describes already in the 19th century that one of the major characteristics of, uh, of crowds or of masses Uh, is that uh, they show a radical intolerance for dissident voices, for alternative voices. So, and I think uh, Gustave Le Bon doesn't explain that, but I do explain it in my book. It's actually something something that's quite easy to understand, uh, because the mass formation um, uh, starts from this highly negative, aversive mental state, which we have been described, which we described in the beginning of the interview, interview. So these four conditions, the Social isolation, the lack of sense making, the free-floating anxiety and discontent, and then the free-floating frustration and aggression. So the process of mass formation makes people switch to the opposite state, to a, a state where in which they are highly connected to each other. And every time they hear a dissonant voice, they hear a different voice, uh, they threaten uh, the mass formation threatens to disappear because mass formation is a phenomenon that is um, constantly. Um, created by the voice of a leader. So that's why totalitarian states always start the day with a half an hour of propaganda. So mass formation is a phenomenon, just like hypnosis, in which someone is grasped into a mental state, state which is provoked by the voice of someone. And if they hear dissonant voices, people threaten to wake up and they threaten to be confronted again with the initial discontent all this free-floating anxiety, frustration, aggression, lack of social bond. So that's the first reason uh, why people are angry and why people are radically intolerant for dissonant voices. But there is a second reason as well. Uh, the fourth condition is that uh, people has to, have to experience a lack of frustration and aggression, and uh, they this frustration and aggression is typically directed at, is typically channeled, is typically satisfied by by uh, uh, directing it at uh, the people who do not go along with the masses. So the, the, the masses always demand conformism. They want everything to contribute, to participate in a mass formation. They always seek an who is typically uh, made uh, the object of frustration and aggression. So every time they hear a dissonant voice, they do two things at the same time. They prevent the dissonant voice of waking them up. And at the same time, they make the dissonant voice the object of frustration and aggression and in this way it's like an object of enjoyment or an object of satisfaction. Uh, So these two mechanisms or the two major mechanisms I think uh, that explain why uh, this the, the masses are always radically intolerant for dissonant voices.
0: You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. And yet, from the other side, where you have people wanting to take part in this project because it gives them something, even in a way, I'd say it it makes them forget that they're part of this totalitarian system. There's people like myself who Mm. I'm I'm seriously waking up in these weeks to the fact that I feel like we've been put in a horrific social experiment. My children suffered, I suffered, my wife suffered gravely. This was horrific. We didn't know. Mm where we're living, we had to look to the internet every time we walked out the door to download a new form, to print it out. We had to look and see what lines we could cross and for what reasons. It was crazy. I would have rather been in prison because at least there's one Mm. rule book in prison. You don't have to worry about going to cell block B because you know you can't go there. So why are we seeing even today from not just major media, Independent media, because the places I pitched stories to were often independent media. Independent media is not wanting to address the psychological toll of what this pandemic has meant. It's not just lockdown. My wife said to me today, in fact, lockdown was two months. And I was like, no, it wasn't. It's been this protracted off and on. We don't even know when it's off or on anymore. That's the torture of it. No,
1: no, indeed, indeed indeed of course yes (laughs) yes you have to read Solzhenitsyn Uh, totalitarianism uh, he describes it in I think chapter four of his uh, wonderful book uh, um, the gulag archipelago um, where he describes how the rules change so often in a totalitarian state just as a consequence of the psychology of totalitarianism Uh, the rules change so so often that in the end there seems to be only one rule, and it is that there are no rules anymore. <laughs> no, there are rules, but there are no laws. There are no laws, so there are no stable laws that 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 exist and that protect, that give a, a minimal protection and a minimal regularity to um, to life. But uh, but that's extremely typical. Uh, yes, there's, there's, there's uh there's, um, confusion at level of rules, which actu- actually actually. Uh, in the end, uh, makes the state uh, almighty and uh, and without limit in, uh, in uh, exercising its power. Uh, uh,
0: yes. Yes, and we were constantly put on this unsure footing as to where, when, or how we could go somewhere. Now, there are mandates in many European countries such that in Italy, you can't travel for more than a certain distance without the green pass. Mm -hmm. When I was in France this summer, I couldn't go to an amphitheater, outside amphitheater, (laughs) because I didn't have their newly unveiled green pass. And you begin to look at this and think, this is outside. This is the least contaminatory space possible. And again, all the rules that are still in order, I have to bring each of my children to the school at a different time because of contamination. (laughs) I have to laugh at this because there's zero science to this. So my first grader goes in at one time and my daughter who's in third grade goes in at another. There's zero science because they're both contaminating the school in two different grades, just as other families with two or three or four kids and yet nobody is pushing back on this. Nobody officially pushes back on this at all. It's all in. It's just like what I quoted from Brazil earlier. We're all in this together. It's this idea. We're doing our bit. Let us stand outside of school in a pouring rain for 15 minutes every day, because we have the misfortune of having two different offspring, <laughs> you know?
1: Yes. Yes, I know. So no. I think, I think that the politicians who would want to push back um, have a very difficult time, I think, in one way or another, it's almost impossible, or it's at least uh, it, it, it asks uh, uh, that you want to lose your career and and your, your public you know, function, I think. Um, but I think we can do something, I think we can do something. At the, at the first, in the first place, I believe that we have to continue to speak out. This is so important. If there is no dissonant voice anymore, if there is no opposition in public space anymore, then the hypnosis will become more and more deep, and the crowd will typically commit its atrocities, which is it which it is famous for. So we have to continue to speak out, and we have to connect not only with the other people who identify. Or who, for instance, not, not only but there are not only people do not only have to connect with the non-vaccinated. They have to connect with the vaccinated as well, who are open to connection because only a small part of the population is really uh, into the process of mass formation. It's not probably not more than about thirty percent, but there is an additional fifty or sixty percent maybe who goes along with the masses. That fluctuates a little bit. Sometimes it's forty percent. Sometimes it's, it's it's fifty. Sometimes it's sixty percent. So, but only 30% is really into the process of mass formation, and there is then a 50 or 60% who goes along with the masses, but of these 50 or 60%, many of these people are not totalitarian in nature, or they are open to connection, and that's really important, we have to connect as much as possible to form small overlapping circles, for instance, to create a network of circles of about 10 persons, maybe, who overlap, and who who form one large uh, network, Uh, that's one thing, and we have to speak out as much as possible wherever we can. We have to speak out in a quiet, um, uh, sincere, and honest way, telling that we don't share the same perspective as maybe uh, most people do. Um, that's so at the psychological level. That's of this quintessential because it's clear that when the opposition is completely silenced in public space, that it exa- that is exactly. Where the totalitarian state starts to commit its atrocities, its absurd atrocities that happened around 1930, I believe, in the Soviet Union, about 1925 in Nazi Germany. At that moment, for instance, in in the Soviet Union, Stalin started his large scale purifications. He called this it of society, in which he he uh, he destroyed or he or he eliminated uh, the one social group after the other. First, there was a certain logic in it. After a while, there was no logic in it at all. It was merely at random almost. He eventually um, killed uh, 50% of, eliminated 50% of his uh, own communist party members as well. Uh, so that, that, that shows us again, if, if there is no, if people stop to speak out, the system becomes absurd and it becomes, as Hannah Arendt, Arendt calls it, a monster that divorces its own children. That's how she calls it. That's, that's so important for the people to, 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 to realize that it's not because you go along with the system that you will be spared by the system. You will, the system will destroy you as well. It will destroy everyone. So the, and, and, and as Hannah Arendt uh, says it, um, uh, uh, this typically starts uh, at the moment. There is no opposition anymore. So we have to continue to speak out for ourselves and also for the people who are into the process of mass formation. That's one extremely important thing. The second one, as I said, is to connect with each other. The third one is that when we try to construct an alternative narrative, I guess we all have to construct our own alternative narrative so that we do not become a mass ourselves, so that we become a group of individuals who all speak uh, at their own best understanding and knowledge. And if, as, as we do that, we have to make sure that we do not try to convince people to go back to the old normal, because that won't work. The old normal was exactly exactly the reason why the mass emerged. The old normal was this state in which people felt socially isolated, felt, felt that their job was a bullshit job, were confronted with this free floating anxiety and all this frustration and aggression. So it makes no sense to try to convince people to go back to the old normal. What we have to do is to try to show people that the new normal should not be the new normal of Klaus Schwab or of one or another transhumanist ideology. That's what we have to try to show people, that there is possible that, that the new normal uh, can be a new normal in which people are free. We, 90%, 90% of the jobs is completely senseless, so we should stop with these bullshit jobs and we should make sure that people earn as much money as they earn now with working only 10% of the time, because that's perfectly possible.
0: We are seeing very few implementations of the reduced work week. We're seeing even less sharing of resources, because what lockdown evidenced was the haves from the have-nots. And I don't just mean Jeff Bezos, but let's talk about people like Jeff Bezos. Let's talk about multiple home dwellers who, it's shocking to me, how people who were born into the good fortune of having been given a home by their parents, as is often the case in Italy, the government in Italy never once thought about renters until almost a year after lockdown happened. And even then you talk to people and they haven't received any help. This is shocking to me that the first thought were the mortgage payers. People who own property. This was all about keeping a certain infrastructure afloat while forgetting about the poor. And I'm very bitter about this myself because I even had a hard time getting renters on record. They were afraid. There was a rent strike in Bologna, people were afraid to give me even their first names. There is a fear of impunity from the system that these people depend upon. The same thing in France and in the UK is surprisingly, renters in New York have been able to have much more power by unionizing, joining forces and fighting the system there. But I'm really alarmed by how lockdown evidenced the haves from the have-nots and how the left became the more totalitarian class where people on the right, I'm generalizing here, but I'm shocked to watch people like on Fox News, American News Channel, which is very right-wing, they are showing more concern for the poor in every way.
1: That's true. Yes, I I think there is one problem with the the um, left-wing political parties uh, when they are confronted with mass formation, they usually mistake um, uh, solidarity for, uh, for Conformity to the masses—that's their problem. That's what they are so sensitive for. Uh, and and they, they in one way or another they feel that uh, going along with the mass, with the, with the crowd, is is a, is 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 a yeah is a, an act of solidarity. Which of course it is not true solidarity. Does not need a scapegoat. It does not need to destroy a social group. Uh, but but masses always need something to destroy. And that's exactly why they are self-destructive in the end. Because if they destroyed. The one group they will definitely find another group and they continue like that until everybody is dead if you don't watch out (laughs) um uh, so that's that's the reason i think um why um so for instance uh, hitler in in nazi germany he started with the with uh, uh, the people who were uh, with physical limitations then the jews then the polish people uh, but he, he planned to continue with the Germans themselves. All the people, first all the, the Germans with heart problems should be eliminated, then all the Germans with lung problems. He had a whole list. So first he started with, with uh, people with uh, uh, physical limitations, then the Jews, then the Polish people. Uh, and then he he planned to go after the Germans with heart problems, then the Germans with lung problems, and so on. And he would not have stopped before he killed every German. (laughs) Um, That's also what he promised, like uh, that he put enough gas aside in case Germany would lose the war. Uh, He had a a, a painless debt for every German. So, but anyway, there is something self-destructive. And then if you understand the psychological mechanism of totalitarianism and of mass formation, it's very easy to see uh, why it is like that. So, uh, and and, um, uh, for instance, the, the leaders of the masses, the leaders of the crowd realize Uh, that uh, they always have to indicate new objects of anxiety that has to be destroyed, because if they don't, the masses will wake up. Because the reason why the masses exist is, or why they buy into the story, the narrative, is because the narrative indicates an object of anxiety that consequently should be destroyed, and uh, that gives them a reason to satisfy their frustration and their anger. So if the leader of of the masses stops indicating objects of anxieties, the masses do not have a reason to exist anymore. And the masses will wake up. And what happens then? As soon as they wake up, they look around them, they see all the collateral damage and the destruction that has happened, and they kill their leaders. All ways. That's what Gustave Le Bon describes already in the 19th century. He describes everybody who takes the lead of the mass better prepares to be killed. And that's exactly the reason why so the leader can't stop why he has to continue and why uh, 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 in the end the process of mass formation is always self-destructive and that brings us to something others something else that is very important everybody who is not buying into the story now everybody who is outside of the mass has to realize that he does not have to that that he doesn't have to destroy the mass or that he doesn't have to destroy the system the system eventually will always destroy itself. The only thing we have to do, I think, is to continue to speak out to make sure that the process of hypnosis doesn't become that deep, that the masses become completely blind and destructive, and then wait until the system weakens itself, and it will, definitely, it will.
0: Do you foresee people holding their leaders to account in such a violent way as we saw in eras preceding us?
1: That's very well possible. But of course, well, we could try to prevent them from doing so. I think um, the punishment of the leaders will be severe enough if they just have to continue to live, being confronted every day with the damage they caused. For I, I, at least, I don't feel like they should be killed. But uh, that, uh, but 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 if the masses wake up, uh, that might be a consequence. Yes.
0: Well, it is shocking to me that we were seeing the leaders of Australia and New Zealand being touted as somehow these truth, forceful, loving of their people leaders. And there was never a question about the tactics that were being used. And I'm thinking of what's happened to the entire country of New Zealand, and most especially Melbourne, where they've been under an extremely harsh lockdown. Mental Mm -hmm. health is barely mentioned in any of this. And I worry about the future of people, the toll this takes on people who are being expected to work from home and homeschool while also doing all these other things. It's insanity. They're trying to push people to the brink. It seems Mm. of a breakdown such that in a way, one must wonder if the authoritarians running the show, are creating their own backup story saying, well, people were crazy. You know, they like to say mass violence in the States is all because of one crazy armed gunman. Mm-hmm. But it seems that lockdown is creating a lot of mental unhealth and it's mm-hmm. affecting so many of us. It's causing stress, it's causing lack of sleep. People are worried about their finances. People are moving back home, thus having a new level of living with their elderly parents and they're in their forties and fifties. These are things that are happening and people are very unhappy and they, Hmm. they are unable to put together the vocabulary of what totalitarian has been unfurled before us all and their reaction to it in the same way that other people are able to not see that lockdown has created much of their mental strife because a lot of people don't react to politics head on. A lot of people will say, oh, it's just a hard time for me. Some people are not putting together the the struggles they're going through with lockdown. So I begin to wonder to what degree that the being overworked, the not eating, not sleeping is going to affect people in different ways, such that only those politically aware will react to their leaders and maybe the rest will have other kinds of outcomes because many people say, well, I'm not a political person.
1: That's hard to predict, I think.
0: It just seems so shocking to me that in this era, you have so many people that have said on social media and elsewhere, people said, how could this have happened? And they point to Nazi Germany and they're like, this is how it happens. This (laughs) is how it happens. Uh We're all Mm -hmm. being convinced that a virus mm. that isn't the plague is going to kill us all. And people mm. are cheerleading the destruction mm. of our economies, the health mm. of, of people who can't get cancer treatments and the loss and of on their on. freedom. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So have you seen any kind of data that is adding up the mental ill health?
1: Uh, no. It exists I, I, I sometimes I've seen some data but, but not comprehensively or not something like a real um, overview of, uh, of of the impact of uh, of the measures on uh, on mental health no but uh, that's all also it, it's very hard to to really um, uh, describe that and to really measure that, I think, uh, because everything happens at the same time. Many people actually do feel better mentally because of the lockdowns, exactly because of the mechanism that I, that I just described, because uh, they feel connected again, they feel that life makes sense, they feel also freed from their bullshit jobs to a certain extent. I talk to many people here in my street, and many of them somewhere mentioned that, well, uh, at least uh, it's it's terrible what happens, but at the same time, uh, we can step out of the, rat, of the rat race for a moment because of the lockdowns and the online work and so on. So I think it's quite hard to, 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 to gauge or to, to, to measure what the exact impact of, uh, of, uh, of the situation is on, on, on the mental health of, of, of people. Uh, in the end, it will be very destructive, that's for sure. But uh, in the beginning, uh, it can be a symptomatic solution for some of the uh, mental health uh, problems.
0: Um. Well, there's also a conflation between what the powers have done to us in terms of making the lockdown and who's giving us the information. I'm sure you've seen how Fauci went from being someone we never really heard of, unless you followed closely AIDS in the 1980s in the US and the CDC, to someone who became this patriarch of all things COVID. He seemed to be, and this is a very strange thing, Mathes, because never before in American news have I seen that there's one person that you go to for all the things. Never. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in the past 21 months, we've seen him and Bill Gates in this Mm -hmm. very bizarre mise-en-scene from CNN given to us on a daily basis, a dozen articles on him. It could be a dozen on Gates. There were days there were so many Gates articles, it was frightening. And to paraphrase one MP from the UK the other day, she said, basically, this is the kind of stuff that gives conspiracy theorists reason to distrust. Mm. It's almost an own goal where the authorities in various countries had their own Fauci. In the US, it was one person. In Mm. the UK, it was Sage. Uh, They used... Dominic Cummings, at one point. What is happening where political leaders are being put in front of the cameras? They're giving us updates like Boris did every night or his people did every night. And then, on the other hand, what happened last week in Italy? There's a journalist, Fabio Fazio, who did something that's really quite shocking. He postured himself as a politician, pushing a politician he was speaking to. Mm -hmm. to push for the green pass, and Mm -hmm. to have it on all public transport, even even those that it's not obligatory on today, where Mm -hmm. media folks and journalists are now taking on the power of an elected official. They, of course, are not elected. And they're introducing this kind of de facto power onto themselves. And Mm -hmm. nobody is stopping this. And we've seen this. Look at what happened to Chris Cuomo in CNN the other day. He got axed because now we find out there were inappropriate dealings between him and his brother's office, the governor of New York. And there are still more questions to be asked as to why we were given one man in the United States who sort of became that world leader for many, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, Mm -hmm. where we are told that one person gets to decide, but where are the political leaders? Why are talking heads speaking? Why are interviewers and journalists taking on this power? It's a very perverse form of totalitarianism.
1: It is. It is. But um, at the same time, yes, it's uh, no surprise, because uh, that's exactly what, uh, from the 19th century already, once the the, the 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 masses became increasingly strong, and the mass formation became increasingly intense and 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 longer lasting. From then on, like also Gustave Le Bon also described it, it uh, starts to become more powerful than politicians, and 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 it takes over society. That's exactly what happens. Yeah, that's, that's yes, it. indeed. I can only agree. It's a strange phenomenon, but it's very real. Yes.
0: Yeah, well, people are definitely progressing their hopes of the future with these talking heads on TV, with political, oh my gosh, every time that there's a new decree or a new law or a new order that is passed, I'm seeing people jubilant over this. And I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, what's wrong with you? People (laughs) are cheerleading their own oppression.
1: Uh, Yes, of course. Yes, 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 definitely, yes. They switch from a an, uh, nature an of extreme individualism into radical collectivism where the individual sacrifices itself in favor of the collective that's what's happening in a mass and that's that's why the corona measures actually are a kind of rituals that's exactly the function of a ritual a ritualistic behavior is a kind of behavior which has no pragmatic meaning which is absurd Absurd from a pragmatic, from the practical point of view, and which demands a sacrifice of the individual. And through such behavior, the individual shows that it considers the collective more important than itself. And that's what hap- what's happening now. People, after an age of individualism, want to be freed of themselves. They suffered from th- from themselves. They suffered from their freedom. They were scared of their freedom, and now they show that they have only one wish only one wish and it is to be to be liberated from themselves and to disappear in the collective to show that they sacrifice their lives their freedom everything in favor of the collective that's one perspective you can take on this crisis of and, and when it, when it as to what happens on a psychological level
0: and you think that the only way of responding then is to be a dissident voice uh, yes. even a dissident actor i presume because we're seeing a lot of people push back and say no i'm not going to get the vaccine and in mm-hmm. certain cases hospitals are obliged to keep these workers on because they don't have replacement for them yes
1: nonviolent resistance is very effective against totalitarianism anna arendt described this in her book I don't know if it is the origins of totalitarianism, or it might be uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem. I think it's the last one, Eichmann in Jerusalem. Um, but non-violent resistance is extremely powerful because when you when you use violence against the totalitarianism, uh, it will always get more aggressive itself. Uh, but non-violent resistance is very strong, very very powerful to to counter. Um, Uh, totalitarianism and in the first place that means in the first place continue to speak out in public space uh, and to show that you um, not agree or that that you do not blend into the mainstream narrative
0: well it seems that the era we're living in is one that will be completely divided always people in our thinking are going to say well, you're causing danger by asking questions. This is a serious virus. If people hear you speaking, yes. they might not get vaccinated. This is their rationale, that we're yes. causing disease by speaking. Yes, of
1: course. Yes, of course. Yes, we have to counter argument as well as possible. We have to show the irrationality. We have to show that uh, when a democracy um, does not allow freedom of speech anymore, Um that it cannot be considered like a democracy anymore, but that that is that in that case it is a tyranny of the majority. That's how Aristotle called it already, uh, and other philosophers after him. Um, I forgot the name of the one I had in my head. Now I don't know. But when when uh, when a in a democracy uh, the majority does not um, give fundamental rights such as freedom of speech anymore to Minorities, then it is not a then it is not a, a democracy anymore. So we have to think about it and, and as and, and and present as clear and convincing argument arguments as possible, uh, showing the importance uh, of uh, other perspectives or dissonant voices. And um, it will not help in this sense. It will not wake the people people up. But if we continue to speak. Uh, in a like this in a in a sincere and quiet way and, and in as rational as possible way with arguments that are as good as possible then you will see that people will continue to, to continue to consider us as human beings because the difference between an animal and a human being exactly is that an animal doesn't speak and a, a human being speaks and the human being has a capacity be it very limited uh, of rationality, of being rational, and um, uh, that's we have to continue to behave as like human beings, and in that way, in that way, um, uh, we will be a counterforce to the dehumanizing trend uh, that is always present in a totalitarianism and, and 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 in a crowd.
0: For many people, including myself, this is utter insanity. I have a hard time some days dealing with everything that's happening because it's really hard psychologically you can be strong and you can know that this is wrong but you're still living in this world of leaving your house looking at people like i'm in italy so there's a lot of people in my town who are elderly who believe this nonsense and they are fearful and they wear two masks on top of each other and then you've got people who know it's, it's absolute nonsense, but they don't want to speak out because they don't want to get into trouble. Yes, I know, I know. So it's, you, have, you have to go even further. You have to look by the people who believe it, the people who don't and won't speak out, and then you have to be that person who speaks out. Yes, of course. You're the person in the restaurant who causes the trouble. <laughs> yes.
1: yes, but everybody has to understand that the safest option is to speak out. You can think that it is safer to shut up, but it's not true. And the, the better you understand what's happening, the more you realize that there is only one option and that it is to speak out. And you can speak out at the kitchen table. You can speak out in front of a camera, in a podcast as we do here, uh, in the street, in a shop. It doesn't matter, but make sure that somewhere a dissonant voice sounds in society a dissonant voice that breaks the frequency of the uh, of the mainstream voice Uh, and everybody even someone who speaks out uh, at the kitchen table or in a shop can create a real change and we do not know where the most the the origin of change uh, will be situated but it might be at the kitchen table or in a shop it might be in front of a television i don't know i don't care but and everybody has to practice speaking the truth. And the truth, I don't mean object, objective truth, but which is always the same. With truth, I mean something you really feel, words of which you feel that they really contain something of yourself, of what you truly believe in. And if you try to give something of yourself, true words to someone else, then you speak the truth. And truth is always something that goes against A dominant narrative. The ancient Greeks knew that already. They called it parasia, courageous speech, a speech that is always, um, that always goes against the dominant narrative, the mainstream narrative, because if a society becomes convinced of one narrative, this narrative always becomes a lie, because reality can never be is never identical to one narrative. There is always a kind of friction between the two. And if one narrative claims to be reality, claims to be the, to, to, to represent the fact, then it needs a voice that says that the narrative is incomplete, even a lie, um, uh, deceitful. And that voice that represents this kind of knowledge that is lacking from the dominant narrative, that is truth. And in that way, what we have to do here is to practice, to practice speaking the truth, um, uh, and that is the real revolution uh, 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 we can realize now. It is establishing a society in which truth has its place, in which it is recognized that it is necessary, and in which uh, it is considered more important than the hollow rhetorics, as we witness it now every day in the newspapers and on television. all uh-huh. right.